This is the word of God from 1 Samuel. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Megan. Uh, Would you remain standing for a few more moments? Um, As we just pray, pray to... The God of the universe who gave us these ancient, sacred, and true words. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Our love is quite imperfect. And this morning we receive these ancient stories that were breathed through your Holy Spirit to instruct us. And don't we need instructing? Recalibrate us. Help us to see straight, Lord. And as we listen to the preaching of your word, shape us, increase our faith. May may, may we listen to your word preached with faith. We need it, Lord. And we'd ask this all in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you before, I'm Ronnie, senior pastor here. Um, you've caught us in the middle of a sermon series on First and Second Samuel, and it's subtitled "Looking for a King." Uh, for those of you who may not have grown up with the Bible like me, uh, you know it's worth clarifying as we begin to study it that the Bible is not a book where we're looking for life lessons. It's not a, a book of fables that help us to make our lives better. In fact, there are very few good examples of like healthy people or emotionally healthy people in the Bible. Uh, you know, the, the great prophet Homer Simpson, uh, he reminded me of this. He's complaining about how everything is so expensive, and he has like the Bible in his hand. He's holding it. He's like, just look at this book. It's like $15, and boy, is this a preachy book, and everyone in this book is a sinner, except for this one guy. And that's about right. That's about right. Homer is not wrong. The Bible is filled with mostly bad examples, and you know, today is no exception. But by studying these ancient stories, uh, we're learning to know what we're looking for or what we should be looking for in a king. Today's story is in this pivotal, pivotal moment in Israel's history where Israel is transitioning from a judgeship, being ruled by a judge, to a kingship, a monarchy. And so it kind of takes this ominous turn. So if you can remember your, your Bible Old Testament history, it was through Moses the Hebrew nation came out of slavery and into freedom and ultimately into the promised land. And so Israel was divided up into 12 different tribes. And so at the time, there was no one single unifying leader. Israel had no king, but that shouldn't have been a problem because God was their king. And at various moments, there would be threats to these 12 tribes and God would raise up a judge, right? Like a military leader. And, at, and we know these stories of the judges. At one, they're, they're so impressed by one of the judges. Y'all remember Gideon? They're so impressed with him. They actually try to make him the king, but he absolutely would refuse uh, that office because he was like, hey, God is our king. And he's right. And last week um, in chapter four, we learned about the death of Eli, who was a judge. He was a priest, but he's also a judge. And upon his death, uh, Samuel, remember this is Hannah's baby, would become the next judge. And because of Samuel's leadership as a judge, Israel, we come into chapter 8, Israel's enjoying a time of peace and prosperity. In, in just the chapter before, chapter 7, uh, you see Samuel leading the people, Israel, in worship and making sacrifices. And while he's doing it, their arch enemies, the Philistines, we have another story with them, they're drawing near to attack. And, and while Samuel, like, like literally making an, a sacrifice, the Lord would just like make this thunderous clap and, uh, or a clap of thunder. It throws the, Philipp the Philistines into confusion and they're routed. They are routed. And so once again, we see like God fights and defeats all of Israel's enemies all by himself. So in chapter 8, and this is where our text that we just heard picks up, it's about 20 years later. Samuel now is no, no longer that little boy. He's becoming an old man. Israel is peaceful. Uh, and they like Samuel. They like him, but they don't like his succession plan. 
See, we're, we learned right away that Samuel has two sons who are scoundrels, which is just like Eli and his two sons with Phineas and Hophnes, scoundrels also. And uh, Israel, they really want to keep and maintain this peace and prosperity. But it feels like the peace and prosperity that they have known is starting to become uncertain. And uh, last week, in a similar moment of uncertainty, the elders of Israel, what did they say? They said, give us an ark. And we, you know, we learned how that ended. This week, although they were experiencing relative peace and obedience, in this new upcoming season of uncertainty, we're told in verse 4 that the elders of Israel come and say, give us a king. And what we're seeing is Israel is relapsing. It's like an addict who's falling off the wagon. Like Israel is relapsing. And uncertainty, without a robust faith in God, will make you do that. It'll make you go and relapse. Now listen, in this passage, wanting a king is not the bad part. In fact, God had already anticipated this. I mean, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God actually says to Moses, he says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. If you want a king, you must allow God to choose him. You must listen to the voice of God. And this is where this ancient story meets us modern people today. Most of us, not all, but most of us have lived fairly privileged lives, charmed lives. But we're growing increasingly paranoid that something is going to come and take it away. With murmurs of recession, market volatility, increasing secularization, fears of war, algorithms of fear. We are tempted to listen to all the wrong voices as we look for significance and security. And why are we so tempted? Like, why is this such a temptation? It was interesting, a thousand years, 2,000 years ago, or a thousand years after 1 Samuel chapter 8, The Apostle Paul would say in chapter 12, he'd say this. He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And my experience is we are being conformed to the world and not transformed We are shaped and molded and conformed. Now listen, when we talk about the world, as Paul's using it, I don't want you to like think of like some scary conspiracy theory group of addicts who just like hate Christians or just grumpy. Like don't don't get all fundamentalist on me, Denver Prez. That's not what we're talking about. In fact, because of God's common grace, The world is filled with beauty, tons of morally upright people, loving people who love their children just like you love your children. The world, however, although filled with beauty, 
does not share the same aspirations as do the followers of Jesus. God's voice, right? God's voice through his word is the single most important voice in the lives of followers of Jesus. And as a result, we have fundamentally different aspirations. Our aspirations and values come from this place of deep worship. For the world, their aspirations and significance, however noble, come from something inside this world. So these two aspirations can't be the same, right? They just can't be. The world's aspirations for significance and security don't come from the Lord himself. Ours do. That's, that's what makes us Christian. Our trust in Jesus ought to be so white hot that it transforms our significance and security. So what I want to do is look at the particulars of this ancient story in 1 Samuel 8 to see how this is shored up. And so for you note takers who need to know that I have a structure, here it is. We're going to look first at the voices of significance, and we're going to look at the voices of security, and then we're going to finish with the voice of God. All right, so the voice of significance, security, and then the voice of God. Let's begin with the voices of significance. Let me begin with a true statement about mankind. Human beings develop elaborate defense mechanisms to block pain and to gain significance. Being a parent has helped me to see this reality in myself as I see it in my children. Uh, See, kids live in this marketplace of voices telling them who they are and how to be valued. And as they hear these voices and as they hear them enough, they become persuasive. And they become persuasive because, well, they want to block pain and gain significance. So as a parent, you're constantly negotiating with various things that your children feel like they need, right, to be significant. And your voice, the voice of a parent, is the voice of love, right? Parents are fundamentally ordered for the good of their children, The voices in the marketplace are not ordered for the good of our children. But here's the deal. Our kids can't always see that or hear our voice or believe it. And so parenting a kid into wisdom is like so hard. Like parenting is wildly hard. And it's not just about saying yes to good things or saying no to bad things. It takes a lot of wisdom. And believe it or not, the most skilled parents will sometimes, not always, But the most skilled parents will sometimes surprise their kids by saying yes to things that they know are a bad idea and to let them face painful disappointment. In Israel's search for significance, that's what God does. See, the elders of Israel, they don't like the succession plan, right? Samuel's boys are scoundrels. They go to Samuel, they say, verse 4, look there, behold, You are old. Ouch, okay? You're old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Samuel takes this to God. God essentially says, verse 7, well, Sam, do it, right? But getting a king, 
you know, you're not going to be that important. You're a judge. You're going to get replaced. You're going to be organizationally redundant. So sorry about that. So a point for them. Uh, obey their voice. Give them a king. Samuel's hurt, of course. God says, hey, you know, cheer up, big guy. He says, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's what's really happening. They want a king like all the other nations. And you hear that? It is the voice of all the other nations that was the most compelling voice. It was the world that gave them this idea. Having a king was all about significance. It's a way of saying we matter, right? This is like an ancient form of FOMO. It says, yeah, we belong on this field of who's who, right? We're players. Now, wanting a king is not the bad part of this. We established this earlier. The problem is, is that they wanted a king like all the nations. The wrong voices are informing this. And here's the thing. You can want a good thing for all the wrong reasons. And what's so painful here is that this search for significance ends so painfully. God says, verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done, From the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they forsook forsook me, serving other gods. In other words, coming out of Egypt is a reference to what? It's a reference of the Exodus. The Exodus is a story about freedom, right? It's about moving from slavery into freedom. And here we see Israel attempting to reverse the Exodus, to go from freedom into slavery. That's what these voices do. And and that's what these voices vouching for significance still do today, family. That's what's still happening. Years ago, I read this book called A Search for Significance. And the author, Vernon McGee, he enumerates these four voices that inform our search for significance. And he says these actually create a tyranny of the soul. The first, I'm gonna, let me go through them, see if one of them resonates with you. The first is uh, the performance trap. So consciously or unconsciously, all of us have, have experienced this feeling that we must meet certain standards in order to attain self-worth. And failure to do so threatens our significance. And this produces a real fear of failure. We believe the voice that says performers are those who are loved and respected. And I must meet certain standards in order to feel good about myself. You know, in the worst cases, psychologists will report that perfectionists are the, can be very vulnerable to mood disorders. That's how deep this can get in us. If you demand to be in control of every situation or if you're real touchy, if you're a touchy person or real defensive with criticism, this might be the voice that you have been obeying. So that's the performance trap. Here's another one, the approval addict. So our sense of self is determined not only by what God says about us, but how we think others perceive us. 
And when that voice becomes persistent enough, we begin to base our self-worth on what we believe others think until we become addicted to their approval. And when we persistently internalize the voice that says, I must be approved by certain others to feel good about myself, we are then under the tyranny of approval addiction. Not freedom, tyranny. Here's a third one. It's called the, he calls it the blame game. If we are beholden to the voice that tells us that success and failure is the primary measuring stick for evaluating others, then failure becomes absolutely a non-starter. It's unacceptable. And it might even disqualify someone from being loved. And when that becomes the norm or the system, then we feel completely justified in condemning, right? Blaming those who fail. Even sometimes including ourselves. Like, I'm so stupid. I blame my brain. God gave me this brand, blame that. Those who never allow room for error or failure ultimately give in to that voice of blame. And we say things like, I will make you sorry for what you did. There must be someone to blame. Can't just be sad about things. You have to blame something. Here's one more, one more vo voice, and it's the voice of shame. When our self-understanding is tethered to our past failures or the dissatisfaction of our personal appearance or maybe our bad habits. It is because we have listened to the lying voice of shame. The one that says, yeah, I am what I am. I can't change. I'm hopeless. The voices of significance only show you inadequacy. Do any of those voices hit too close to home? Performance trap, approval addict, blame game, shame. Can you see how they are tyrannical? When we say, I want a king, one like the nations, I want, I want one like my culture, right? My culture tells me if I am enough. My culture tells me what I should be like. If you do that, you're giving, in, you're giving the world a, a, a place of privilege. You're giving the world a voice that's reversing the exodus. It will drive you back into emotional chains until you just feel like you're crazy. Like, do you ever just feel like you're crazy? the wrong voice. What, what can free you from that? It's the voice of God, your true king. We're going to get to that here in just a minute. So we looked at the voice, the voices of significance. They want, in this case, they were manifest in Israel's desire to be like the other nations, to be like their culture. Let's turn our attention to a second set of voices that we see in this text. It's the voices of security. Um, yesterday, uh, not yesterday, but years ago, actually, uh, Jim Carrey, you know, I like to quote him a lot. I don't know why. That's how I've been doing that. More than C.S. Lewis, even. It's weird. Uh, Jim Carrey, he, he makes this movie called uh, Liar, Liar. Maybe a few of you have seen it. So the movie follows Jim Carrey, who is a lawyer. His wife and son would say he makes a living on lying, right? 
And his son actually just came to believe that his dad's a pathological liar. Well, so Jim Carrey gets cursed, and he literally cannot lie. He can't say a lie. Like, no matter how hard he says, he can't utter a lie. And so this curse is so both devastating, but it's ultimately healing. And he learns so much about true love, but namely, he learns how much he loves his son. So towards the end of the movie, he's like he's overjoyed by the, the truth that's kind of pouring out of his mouth. And he's like running out of the courthouse and he passes this beggar, this vagabond, right? Who he's, he's, he has seen so many times. The beggar's always asking for money and Jim's always lying about not having money. But this time he can't lie, right? He can't lie. So instead of like avoiding this beggar, Jim Carrey like runs up to this guy and he's like super joyful and he just starts emptying out his pockets with all this change, just dumping it in this kid, in this, this beggar's cup and he's filling it up and he's smiling like ear to ear and he's like, hey man, like take my change, but it's not going to make you happy. <laughs> it's, like, it's like he's having this truth moment with the beggar. Yeah, take my money, but truth bomb, it's not going to make you happy. In other words, here's what you want, but it's not what you're really looking for. And in fact, it could be fatal. This is exactly what is happening with Israel. They want a king. In verse 20, they even clarify. Look at verse 20. They say that, that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want security. You see that? They want security. Someone will fight their battles. You can either depend on the Lord who's going to protect you with like clapping thunder, or you can depend on like a bazillion person militia, an army. Who, who are you going to put your money on? Who's better at protecting you? The voices of security tell them that a king and his chariots are what you really need because God's not enough. And this is baffling, right? Because God has proven himself that he's the one who wins Israel's battle if they'll just heed his voice. The only reason that they would need a king is if they're planning on not doing things God's way. And here we are. God says to Samuel, verse 9, he says, Samuel, obey their voice. Even though they don't obey yours, you obey theirs. It's kind of ironic. Give them what they want. And he says, obey their voice only. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them, what they're really getting. And so what follows from verses 10 to verse 17 uh, is what's really going to happen. Now, here's the irony. They want a king because they think that he can give them security. But what they're going to find is not a king on the give, but a king on the take. And these verses present a king who's actually a tyrant. Six times the word take is mentioned. Look, at, look with me. We're, we'll go through this quickly. Verse 11. He will take your sons and appoint them to his calvary. Verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16, 
He will take your male and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. I don't know why he puts young men and donkeys together there, but there you are. And then verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Again, the exodus is being reversed by their own choosing. Sometimes God disciplines us by giving us what we want. When God says yes to us, it's not always evidence of blessing, family, but it is evidence of his love because he's a skillful father. With Israel, it's not, it's not that they outright rejected God. I mean, if you were talking to an Israelite, they would say, yeah, like, I love God, but really, come on, give me a king because that's where my security comes from. So in this way, it gives them distance from having to trust God in any real meaningful way. I mean, they want God, they do, but they want to be free from that dependence, you see. Listen up. Freedom cannot come from being free from God. It only provides a different king, and that alternate king is really a despot. To the extent that we learn this and to the extent that our children learn this is to the extent that we save ourselves so much pain in this life. Because the voices of security actually lead to insecurity. Like, why is this so hard for us to believe? Here's why. Because secretly, we think God wants to take something good away from us we grow increasingly paranoid that he will take away something that we think gives us security. It feels like the wrong move, like on a chessboard, and, 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 and the, move, the, the, the killer counterattack move hasn't been made, and we're starting to feel anxious about it. Like, listen, listen you guys, it's okay to ask for something that we desire, but our security is only found in the plan that we drew up. Or so we think that security comes from the plan that we drew up, our chess moves. We don't believe that God is ordered for our good. Because isn't that what love is? Love is not a vibe. Let me, let me just repeat that. Love, no matter what culture says, no matter what the posters say, love is not a vibe. Love is being ordered for someone's good. And if, if God is taking something away, it's for our good. Even if God's plans are incomprehensible to us, there, there's all, there, they are always, his plans are always for something more profound. And when God says yes to us, it's not always evidence of his blessing, right? I've, I've said this. It is evidence of his love, though. I want you to hear that. You know, as you read this text... As a reader of the Bible, you're supposed to be like saying out loud, like, Israel, come on, like, y'all are so good. God of Israel is going to give you all the security you ever need. Don't do it. Like, don't get a king. God is so clutch. You'll be fine. Like, that's, that's the internal conversation you're supposed to be having. But like, from their perspective, Israel's just 12 loosely related tribes, not very unified a thought of a king made a whole lot of sense to them. They said, we need rulers. We need a person to rule us, over us. 
And what that request is, is a solution based on their perception of the problem. They are looking for external solutions because, as they understand it, the problem is external. Listen up, I'm, I'm setting you up, right? That's what rhetorically I'm doing here. The reason we seek wrong solutions to our problems is because we don't see that the real problem is in our heart. We think our problem is finances or economy or an imperfect spouse or no spouse or our kids' behavior or the wrong political parties in power. And what we say is if we can just get that thing settled, we'll be okay. That's the problem. I just need to get that thing settled. It's all external. And what we don't see is our habits and these beliefs that we have adopted, maybe from our family of origins, these, uh, these codependencies, our, our materialistic views of money, or these ideas about the perfect life that is tied to a spouse, a career, a house in the trendy part of town here in Denver with a white picket fence where you can kind of walk to like Whole Foods or something cool. Um, or a stock in Amazon that you got in 1999. That was a keeper. Or the Icon ski passes. Or an electric car. Makes us feel good about ourselves. And the 2.3 children that we have who started reading when they were 11 months old. Full sentences. Really bright. All of these are the voices and promises of security. And God says, I... I might give them to you, but they'll enslave you. They'll make you insecure, not secure. Until you realize that your problem is not your lack of those things, but rather your problem is your heart. That you were made for the true king, and none of those solutions will ever pay out. In fact, the thing that you're looking to for security will actually create new insecurities and it will come to feel like tyranny. And the Bible says, no, no, no. Like, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes not from my stuff. My help, my security comes from the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth. Deep security comes when that level of dependence is so caked to your soul that when you're cut, you bleed confidence that the Lord knows what he's doing and it's incomprehensible, but he's good. And that's enough. Whatever life throws at you, he's enough. I am telling you, church, that is the only place you will find security. Let me quickly conclude with the voice of God. You know, I began by saying that we are being conformed to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed. And the conforming comes mostly by what we value, right? Our aspirations are the same as any other person, even people who 
Don't trust in Jesus, whose life is not ordered towards Jesus and his gospel. And those aspirations are shaped by the voices of our culture in the way of the voices of significance, right? The markers of what tells us we are something or in the way of the voices of security, right? All the cultural indicators that say you're safe. All those things are a bait and switch. They're just a bait and switch. You want a king that can give it to you, but what you get is a despot that will only take. And so here's what I want you to know. God always wanted to give us a king. And this king that God wants to give and has given us will indeed go out before us, in front of us, and fight our battles. Y'all remember that story in the New Testament, Jesus at the transfiguration? He's like glowing white, and the voice speaks from heaven, speaks over Jesus, and he says, in Luke 9, he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen Listen to him. In other words, this is the son of God. This is your king. Like, yield to him. Because he doesn't send us to fight his battles for him. We're like, like we're his minions. That's not what he does. He fights, bleeds, and dies on your behalf. He goes before you for his people. And this king is not on the tank. This king is on the give. I mean, he's going to use the word take, but this is what he says. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lonely of heart. You'll find rest for your weary souls. This king is a giver. He didn't come to be served or to take, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. Now give your life to this king. If you want to know what he looks like, this is what he looks like. He is your king, and he is ordered for your good. Amen? Amen.